You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for March 13th, 2022, the second Sunday in Lent. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1, and Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Early Saturday morning, it was late Saturday, excuse me, late Friday evening, perhaps around 11 o'clock or so in Eastern time here in the United States. The Church of England published a letter, a plea for prayer, it was titled, by the Reverend Canon Malcolm Rogers, who is the chaplain of St. Andrew's Church in Moscow. It's an Anglican parish in the Diocese of Europe in the Church of England, and it serves the international community in the Russian capital. And I want to read you a part of that letter. Dear friends, Canon Rogers writes, St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Moscow is situated only 10 minutes walk from the Kremlin, the physical and geographical center of power. The ministries of education, culture, and defense are near neighbors. We are in the center of power, and yet we are powerless. Today, as many of our dear friends have left Russia, and as we nervously wonder whether or when we should leave, we are even more conscious of our powerlessness. Now that special military operations as they are called here, have begun. There is nothing that we can do to stop them. But it is precisely our powerlessness which means that there are things we can do. We are gospel people who serve a crucified but risen Lord. We are the nobodies of 1 Corinthians 1, and it is our very powerlessness and insignificance and foolishness that can also be our strength if it is handed to God. And then in words that I don't think I will ever forget reading, Canon Rogers writes, we can still speak truth. There are some things that we cannot say in Moscow, but we can still preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen, and reigning. It's an unbelievable letter, written by a parish priest to his Anglican brothers and sisters throughout the world. That's us. I would ask that you go to to churchofengland.org after this service and read it sometime this week. And please join me in praying for Canon Rogers and for his congregation as he asks us to. Canon Rogers asks in particular that we pray for courage and wisdom and perseverance in faith and love. And then he says, and we pray for you too. It's an extraordinary letter and I commend it to you in these days. St. Paul wrote our second lesson from his letter to the church at Philippi in conditions which were not much better than those in which 
Canon Rogers wrote this weekend. In fact, in some ways, they were far worse. St. Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians from prison. Traditionally, it was thought that he was in prison in Rome, although, to be honest with you, Paul was in and out of jail so many times that scholars debate which imprisonment this actually was. In any case, he's writing it from his jail cell, as it were, to a community which he loved very, very much, a community which loved him, a community which had sent to him one of their leaders, someone whom Paul calls their apostle, a man named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus has cared for Paul somehow during his imprisonment. And Epaphroditus has gotten very sick. And so he, Paul is insisting that Epaphroditus go back to Philippi to get better. And he sent Epaphroditus with this letter to deliver to the church when he gets there. That's how the letter gets going. The purpose of the letter is to encourage the Philippians that even though Paul is clearly in danger, even though he is clearly under duress, God is still at work. And God is still at work in and through his difficulty for his good and for the world's. The gospel, Paul writes, has now become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And he says, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me living is Christ and dying is gain. It's also an extraordinary letter. Paul has discovered God at work in his imprisonment and affliction, at work against his imprisonment and affliction, and in spite of his imprisonment and affliction to accomplish God's purposes. God will not be stopped by a petty dictator throwing this man in jail. And God's perseverance makes Paul's perseverance possible. God's strength gives him strength. Even should Paul die, Paul's saying, God will take care of him and God will get God's way. Paul's courage in the letter to the Philippians is a participation by grace, I think, in the courage of Jesus himself, with whom Paul says he is joined mysteriously, mystically, spiritually in his suffering. As Reverend Elizabeth, Father Peter, and I spoke about in our weekly podcast this week, this morning's gospel lesson shows Jesus' own perseverance. It's a cryptic and difficult to understand lesson, but the heart of it is Jesus' courage. <coughs> the Pharisees are trying to do Jesus a solid, basically. They're trying to warn him that Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, has lost his patience with Jesus, and he wants to kill him. And they're saying, get out of here before Herod gets you. But Jesus refuses to cower. He will not be dissuaded. He says, I'm going to continue on my way to Jerusalem, where I know that I'm going to die, and nobody is going to stop me. Jesus' courageous perseverance 
is in Paul. And what Paul is doing in the letter to the Philippians is he's praying that his courage and perseverance would be in the Philippians. And I believe in us. The New Canaanites, or the Wiltonians, or the Norwalkians, or what have you. That the courage of Jesus, which was in him, would also be in us. That we, and the whole church, might be, as he puts it, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, shining like stars in the world. It's a line from the chapter which precedes where our lesson picks up. That's the idea that our lesson picks up with, with Paul enjoining his brothers and sisters to imitate him as he imitates Jesus in this spirit of courage. And the stakes, he says, are high. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, as Dean read. I preached several weeks ago about putting villains behind us. With attention particularly to the way that we habitually villainize our political opponents in contemporary American culture. And that sermon may seem to sit a little uneasily with Paul's strong words here about the enemies of the cross of Christ. But I have not changed my mind, not even with regard to Vladimir Putin. Because there's a difference between a villain and an enemy. A villain, as I tried to say as best as I could, which was not very well, but as I tried to say in my sermon a few weeks ago, a villain is someone or a group whom we've turned into a cartoon of evil. We do this through stereotyping, through anonymizing vagaries like some people our opponents, those folks, etc. We turn them into people who are one-dimensional, who are reducible to the evil that they represent and all the way down. And they're unforgivable and deserving of nothing other than defeat or annihilation. They're unworthy of our dialogue or engagement. Their sheer existence is a threat to all that we care for. The only thing to be done with such a person is to just write them out of the story. And Jesus people just don't do villains. I still believe that. I just don't think Jesus people do villains. Not ones, not us who follow the one who on Holy Saturday, that precious day between Good Friday and Easter, between the death and resurrection of Christ, where as we will say in the creed, Jesus descended to be with the dead. And as I recently heard it said, on this day, Jesus went looking for Judas in hell. The one who had betrayed him, but who was nonetheless his friend. People who follow Jesus, it can't do villains. But we do have enemies. And so did Jesus. We have enemies who are actual, historical, concrete people with bodies and souls. 
who are not reducible to the evil that they do, but whose sin does present a threat to us or to those whom we love or to our neighbors. And even though Jesus calls us unequivocally to love them, we are to love them as such, to love them as our enemies and not as our friends. To love them as people whose sin presents a threat to us or to others and whose sin is foremost a threat spiritually to themselves. <coughs> people who need liberated themselves from their sin as desperately as we do. Because wrongdoing and sin, evil, dehumanize us. Villains are in some sense imaginary. They're always products of stereotyping or exaggeration or reduction. But truly to recognize somebody as your enemy is really to apprise a situation realistically and rightly. Rightly to see the threat, not of their existence, but of their sin, of their actions. And to be frank, I believe that, I still believe that most contemporary Americans have grossly overestimated the number of fellow Americans who are their enemies, not to mention villains in their stories. And I also believe that we could all do with more fear and trembling when it comes to estimating the evil which is done by each other. But the human propensity self-righteously to warp reality to our own self-benefit, to making us feel better about ourselves, it does not mean that there are no such enemies at all. And it does not mean that we should not name them. It does not mean that there are not those who have made their God the belly, enslaving themselves to the rapacious, murderous, and avaricious instincts which lie buried in the cracks and crannies of all human nature, including our own. Such people exist. And I hazard that Vladimir Putin is one of them. We ought all, as commended by the Archbishops of Canterbury and York, the leaders of the Anglican Communion, our presiding bishop, our bishops of Connecticut, we ought all, as Christians, to repudiate and to resist the evil of Vladimir Putin's unprovoked and unjust invasion of Ukraine in whatever ways are given to us to do so. In whatever ways we as a society discern our most prudent, effective, and wise given the unbelievable and terrifying complications of living in a nuclear age. in whatever ways accord with our vocations, our place in life, and our locations, who it is who are our neighbors. But we ought all to repudiate and to resist with the courage and wisdom and perseverance for which Canon Rogers has <coughs> asked us in this congregation to pray, and which Jesus and St. Paul display in our readings today. We ought to repudiate, resist, and persevere in prayer, not just for the people of Ukraine, nor just for them and those Russians ashamed of Putin's aggression, but also for those who support him, and indeed for him himself.
and to hope and to work for their deliverance from their sin as much as our own. Putting away the cheap justice of vengeance and aspiring to the true justice of peace. That's what I believe it means to love our enemies in a time of war. Because our enemies are God's children as much as we. All of us as beloved of God, as Judas was of Jesus. And their sins are catastrophes, not just to us, but to them. And their rubble buries their souls in their bellies. That our enemies are beloved of God, too, means that there can be no holy wars for Christians, only tragic ones. Conflicts, military, economic, and or political, which I believe Christians may nonetheless in good conscience be enjoined to fight with the same persevering spirit as St. Paul and as Jesus. Whatever it is that we do, whatever it is that you do in these days, do not despair. For we, like Canon Rogers, can still preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen and reigning in spite of it all. For God the Lord is still sovereign over the heavens and the earth and still at work in our world to work and to will for his good pleasure in spite of our vanity, our murder, and our disaster. Our job is to tuck in behind him in whatever way is given to us and stand firm. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.